Amen. Thank you. So formal. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I should have prepared these things before I got up here, but at least I'm not getting dressed. That's something we can thank God for. <laughs> yes. Uh, hey, it's uh, college football season. Did you guys know that? So if, if a Florida, if, a, if you're an FSU fan, how would you, how would you demonstrate that you're an FSU fan? Right? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't even know if that's politically correct anymore, but they still do it at the stadium, so I think we're safe here. If you're a Florida fan, what would you be doing? There it is. Yeah, right. So, like, I, so, <laughs> I didn't mean to start a fight. I just, uh, it, <laughs> we could list off all of the colleges, uh, I suppose, and each one has some distinctive way of demonstrating their allegiance to that school, or, I mean, at least the athletic department. I don't think anybody's out in front of the physics department going, oh. <laughs> but on a much more serious note, there is actually a distinctive trait that is supposed is supposed to be the identifying uh, the uh, the identifying uh, signature distinctive of those who've embraced a faith in Jesus. I saw a meme the other day. I think John Clonch posted it, and it read: "An old Amish man was once asked, are you a Christian?'" The Amish man paused and pointed at his neighbor's house and said, the answer to that question can and should be found by asking my neighbor. Why? Because of that distinctive trait that we're going to be looking at this morning as we come back to our study in the Gospel of John. And if you'd like to follow along with me this morning, if you'll find your way to John chapter 13, please. Last week we began chapter 13. Uh, which starts a new section in this gospel, the book of glory, where Jesus gives his farewell address and his final prayer with his disciples before his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension, which is what we define as his glory. As the chapter began, Jesus told, John rather told us this remarkable story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And we looked at that event last time and considered what it means to us, what it means and what implications it has for how we live. When we see this revelation of God's love and this example that he sets for us to follow. And so as we pick up today, we're still thematically within that context. We're actually in that same context in terms of the scene that we're in. It's still the Passover uh, supper that he's at with his, with his disciples. And a sort of climactic point is made in relationship to this theme. Like, in many ways, I feel like so much of what we've seen happening in the book of signs with Jesus is leading us up to this, this point that we're, we're going to look at. Now, it's not like the, it's not like, you know, the thing that's going to blow your mind or whatever, but it's, but it's the thing that actually centers everything that this gospel is all about. You'll get what I'm talking about. In the rest of this chapter, there are three parts that we're going to read about. One, a revelation that someone's going to betray Jesus. Two, a new commandment given by Jesus. And then thirdly, a forecast of Peter's denial of Jesus. And the main focus of this section is Christ's commandment, but it's sandwiched between these two revelations of faithlessness. 
And, and that appears to be an intentional contrast that John is making. John's prone to that in this gospel. He likes those contrasts of light and dark. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to be seeing in this. So if you're there in John chapter 13 and you're going to follow along this morning, we're, we're going to read the whole section through the end of the chapter. And, and then we're going to go back through and unpack it. The, the story is dramatic and I just feel like it needs to be kept together and not uh, broken apart as we go through. So we'll pick up where we left off with verse 18. Jesus had just told his disciples after he's washed their feet, he told them that they would enter into that Makarios state, that blessed life, that whole life, if they would follow this example of humble service and care for one another. And then it says, verse 18, I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. That's Psalm 41.9, if you're taking notes. Uh, I, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you'll believe that I'm the Messiah. Again, this takes us back to the end of John's gospel where he explained to us why he wrote this so that we would believe that he is the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger, he's talking to his disciples here, is, is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the father who sent me. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved. And we assume scholars, most scholars assume this is John, the one who's writing this gospel, is, is that disciple. So the, the, uh, the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So the disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, It's the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, the Satan, or Satan, or the enemy, entered into him. In other words, he becomes the enemy at this point. And Jesus told him, Hurry, do what you're going to do. None of the, other decide, none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Jews was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives, the glory, receives glory because of the Son, he will give his Son, he will give his own glory to the Son so that he will... And he will do so at once. Oh man, read that three times real fast. That's, but you get the idea. The idea of this is this moment of glory. All of this, this repeated theme of glory. And remember where we're headed. To the cross. To a grave. But to a resurrection and ascension. So, you know, it's upside down. Rather, it's right side up from our upside down understanding uh, of things. Um, verse uh, Verse 33. Dear children, this is Jesus still speaking, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you'll follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. 
Jesus answered, die for me. I'll tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Okay, so there's a lot of drama in this section here, and there's a lot to unpack, but it's intensifying as we go. Jesus lets them know that someone's about to betray him, uh, and, and he lets them know that this doesn't take him by surprise. This was prophesied in Scripture. He was well aware that this was going to happen, and even though he's leaving, it's not all over. He's going to send his disciples out, just like he was sent by the Father, and the glory continues here. But he starts with a revelation of betrayal. Someone's going to rat us out, boys. And, and, and when the disciples hear this news, they're perplexed, they're uncertain. But what are they uncertain about? Who, did I hear that? Who it is? Yeah, who it is. I find that fascinating. I, you know you've heard me say this before, but when they heard the word betray, Everyone in the room didn't just slowly turn and look at Judas and give him the stink eye. We knew it, Judas. What have you been up to? Judas did not stand out as the usual suspect in in this. In fact, Peter has to motion to John to ask for a hint, uh, you know, uh, find out who this is. And so in order for him to ask him, it says that he leaned on to Jesus. So remember, a visual might be helpful here, but remember that they're not sitting at a table like Leonardo da Vinci's painting where they're getting a group photo taken or, or something. They're at a Roman triclinium. It's a U-shaped table, and they're all low to the ground on cushions. Their feet are out back behind them, and they're leaning on their, their left arm, and they're eating with their their right arm. And, and so this puts John to the right of Jesus because in order to talk to him, he's got to lean backwards. So we realize where John is at the table in this. And, 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 and so the seats, flee, the seats that are flanking the master of the ceremony, and the master of the ceremony would be Jesus, their rabbi at this point, are the right and the left seats. Those are the seats of honor. So we see actually John is sitting here at, at a seat of honor. And And so when he asks this question, Jesus, who is it? Jesus tells John that the betrayal will be the one that he gives a piece of bread to. And he hands it to Judas, who by implication must be on Jesus' left-hand side. And of course, he's obscured uh, in the the photo there. But uh, does this work? But he's right up in there somewhere. Uh, Anyway, so you got to let that sink in for just a second. And we've gone, if you've been to any one of our uh, Monday, Thursday services, this is something we've pointed out. Judas was sitting in a seat of honor at that meal with Jesus. That's just, I don't know. Uh, that's a, that's a profound, uh, thought to me. And the text tells us that the enemy prompts Judas to follow through with his plan. And Jesus dismisses him to do it, and no one is suspicious of Judas, even when he gets up during the meal and and bolts out of there. They don't put it all together till it's all done, that Judas was a thief and he was motivated by self-interest. I mean, honestly, we don't have much to go on as to why Judas did this, but a love for Jesus was clearly not one of the motives uh, that he was operating from. And yet up to this moment, he's sitting in the seat of honor. He looks just like every other disciple who was there. And we talked at the outset about how a person gets identified as a follower of Jesus, how someone can be, what's that distinctive of uh, of a follower of Jesus, of a Christian. And in this text, we actually have two faulty tests and one true 
test for this. And so based on our observations about Judas, we can actually see that association with Christianity isn't the test of a sincere disciple being associated with it. Judas, listen, Judas fits in for the most part. The other disciples didn't notice anything strange about him during their ministry together. In the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus sends all the disciples out to do the same ministry he's doing, to heal the sick, to you know, raise the dead, do all these different things, it doesn't indicate that Judas wasn't able to do any of that stuff. You don't have a report like in the disciples were talking to each other. Did you notice how every time Judas prayed for someone, they burst into flames? Wait, what's up with that? No, Judas fit right in. And this is the way it actually goes. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, some people would be associated with God's kingdom and yet be unknown by Jesus in a saving way. Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the weeds growing together. And Paul warned about wolves coming into the midst of the flock. And those things weren't told to get us suspicious of each other or or doubting or fretful and questioning our own relationship with Jesus. But it's still a reminder that fitting in with religious culture is not anything that God is, is encouraging us to do. That's not part of this program to try to fit in with the religious culture around us. Showing up where Christians are, using Christian language, raising our hands at the appropriate songs. Judas can do all of those things. It's important for us then to, as a fellowship to remember that fitting in is not the goal. So we want to be careful that we don't create a, an atmosphere that demands conformity to whatever our expectations might be on any given thing. But rather, let's point one another to Jesus and to a relationship with him from which the true test of our discipleship will actually flow. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the next thing I want to consider is the other false test. So we need to think about Peter. When Jesus says that he's going somewhere and they can't follow, you know, Peter gets all whiny, wants to know why he can't go too. And he makes that bold statement, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'll, I'll die for you. I'll follow you to death. But Jesus knows better. And he reveals to Peter that within a few hours, he, he's going to disavow any connection with Jesus at all. And not just once out of a panic in the moment, but it, deliberately three times he does this. So there's another negative example. We learn here that demonstrative zeal isn't going to identify us as Jesus' faithful disciples either. And this one, honestly, could almost be more important for us to consider and, and think about than even Judas's thing. I think most of us can quickly, you know, settle it in our own hearts. So, you know, I'm not going to be Judas. I, I'm determined on that. I, that's not me. But boy, this one, this one's a little trickier because as American evangelicals, we seem to feel this pressure that, that there has to be a certain level of zeal and it's usually expressed in taking a stand uh, about something. We have to be bold and in your face about our convictions because if we don't, well, we're not being faithful to Jesus in this. We're not being faithful to Christ and the world won't know that we are Christians if we don't take a stand about this or that. And as a result, we've had this ongoing climate of culture wars taking place and anyone who is 
self-identified as a Christian starts to boldly and publicly express their convictions about morals and suddenly every issue in life, every issue that comes up becomes this life and death issue that we've got to take a stand and figure out and and do all these things with. And everyone who, who doesn't do this, doesn't hold those convictions, well, they're all of a sudden feeling on the defensive and they fire back and the shouting and the name calling begins and the verbal bombs go off and... We've got this ongoing culture war. And notice that it's not out publicly expressing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and God's grace for humanity. No, it's out expressing a stand about moral convictions. And this is, this is seen as, as being a, an important part of being a faithful Christian, being faithful to Jesus. Because how will the world know we're we're Christians if we don't take a stand uh, and fight people about these things? And I I know it's quiet in here, but I'm just going to say being outspoken about socio-religious debates going on in our culture right now is not always the best way to represent Christ, at least as far as I've been able to discern in observing this. Being zealous over our religious convictions is not the means by which we are easily identified as followers of Christ. It certainly will identify us with a movement or a morality, but not necessarily Jesus. Peter was zealous about his conviction to stick with Jesus, even at the expense of his own life, outspoken about the whole thing. Really exciting and exhilarating for him to say all of that. But ultimately, it didn't mean a thing. Not really. Not when it really came to Jesus. And that's the danger because zeal can so easily be mistaken for vitality. That that adrenal jolt that comes from taking a stand or declaring a fight can give a false sense of life. And replicating that jolt then becomes the motive. I want that again. I want everybody to see and know. We can get so zealous and charged up and in your face about the things we believe or the morals that we've embraced that we end up actually distancing ourselves from Jesus and we don't even realize it. This has been an ongoing ongoing struggle for the church. What I'm describing here is not something new. I mean, certainly we've been seeing something develop over the last 40 to 50 years in our particular society and culture. But this is not new. This has been going on with the church since the church started. This has been an ongoing struggle for 2,000 years. We keep thinking that morality is the means by which the gospel gets promoted. And we forget that's exactly the position that the Pharisees took in their opposition to Jesus. They're there for a reason. We're supposed to be learning something from these Gospels. We get so angry and indignant about the changes of morality that we witness happening in our culture and we fight back with rage and outrage and we push and we don't even notice that we're taking on the role of persecutor and discriminator 
And Christ gets obscured in all of it. That's why I've been adamant throughout all these years, and I'm not changing now. I am not going to get hung up on the particulars of morality and hot topic issues of this day. Because I believe Jesus has been obscured enough in these culture wars. My focus is going to remain where it has always remained on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because I'm telling you right now, that's the only hope that we have. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not somebody's moral perfection or attempt at achieving it. And I know... I mean, it's quiet in here now. You should stand where I'm standing and feel your own heartbeat in your neck. But I know that people have and will continue to call me a compromiser. You know, but Rob, the Bible says, and listen, I know what the Bible says. I I know it well. Do you? I also know that Jesus told us that the whole law and the prophets are fulfilled in love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything summed up in that. To which one zealous for the law asked, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded, it's the outsider. It's the one who's beaten up by others and written off as wickedly vile or unclean. Love that one like you love yourself. That's who you love. That's your neighbor. That's how we're faithful to God, according to Jesus. Which brings us to our last point. The commandment Jesus gave and the true test of discipleship. Let's read it again. Verses 34 and 35. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Not a new bit of advice. Not a new suggestion. Give this a try. (laughs) I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Those words are so easy to read. They're so easy to understand. I mean, this is simple words. This is not rocket science. This is really simple, but simultaneously absurdly difficult to do and to put into real life. But this is it. The command that produces the great distinctive of Christ followers, this selfless, sacrificial love is the DNA trait of Christ's family. This is it. And it almost sounds cliched. You know, we're so familiar with it. It's, you know, it's like something more suitable to a meme than being the fulcrum of God's kingdom. But there it is. And we have to look at it. We have to consider it. And we have to overlay our own attitudes, actions, and words on this and see how it lines up. Jesus wasn't just giving his disciples a bumper sticker cliche to slap on the back of their donkeys as they drive around. And for as cliched as it may sound, everyone knows that if people really did love each other, everything would change in this world. You realize that? 
we'll, at the end of the service, we'll pray about things emerging on the world scene. And there's wars and rumors of wars. Do you realize if people actually loved each other, what would change in this world? If we walked out of this door today and something had transpired to where everybody loved each other, everybody was going to look out for the interests of the other. I mean... Crime would stop, wars would end, poverty would truly diminish, families would stay intact, there would be no slaves for the sex trade, there would be no child abuse, no one discriminated against or objectified ever again. I mean, you just think of the extension of that, what the world would look like if, if people really and truly loved others as much as they loved themselves. And as we imagine it, I mean, it starts to form a picture. It's like paradise, isn't it? It's like heaven. Heaven on earth. Jesus prayed that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We are agents of heaven, of the kingdom of heaven. This kind of selfless love is the basis for heaven. And that's why it becomes this distinctive trait of those who've come under the rule of heaven, who've come into the kingdom of God. And this surely isn't romantic love that we're talking about. Again, we have to qualify. The culture has a a version of love, a perspective of love, but it's not this. This isn't romantic love. It's not, you know, simply loving people who will love us in return. Remember, Jesus washed Judas' feet with all of the others. He's going to go on to demonstrate just how much God loves the world by dying for those who manifestly do not love him back. This is a love that's born out of a love for God. And it's not a codependent love, enduring someone's abuse in hopes that it entices them to love you back. This is a love that is secure in God and looks for ways to bring out what's best in and for others. Jesus didn't leave us with a challenge that they'll know your mind when you have all your theologies nicely cataloged or when you take a stand on all the right moral issues. No, because those would have been so easy, (laughs) so easy in comparison. No, he gives us the hardest one of all. They'll know your mind when you love like I do. And at that, we stagger back. (laughs) How? How do I do this? How do I love like Jesus? I mean, some people are just too hard to love. They're mean and petty and mean. And how do I do that? Well, first we have to realize this is not a work we've been called to. It's not something that we're going to have to you know, muster up and make happen somehow. It's a cause and effect kind of thing. If you take a piece of iron and you bring it into contact with the positive pole of a magnet, the negative and positive particles within the iron get realigned and it becomes a magnet too. Notice that Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. One is born out of the other. Gary Burge, in his commentary, wrote, Unless one has a profound experience of being loved, it is virtually impossible to express profound love for another. 
This is why we emphasize this here so much and why I'm committed to doing so because his love for us, when we believe it and build our identities on it, it realigns us. It awakens us to the ability to love others. It awakens us to a life lived the way he desires us to live. It doesn't become an issue where we have to pound and hammer about moralities. It becomes this realignment that begins taking place as the Holy Spirit begins reshaping us into the people we were always meant to be. If we are loved by Him, we can love others without fear because we're secure in who we are in Christ. This is a love born from divine love. And it startles the world because it's entirely different from the strictly reciprocal love that the world always has known. I'll love you if you love me. You cross me, I hate you. This is God's love. The I love you with an open end, without condition. And that doesn't mean that, you know, whatever we do, he's affirming, would you know, go on our own ways and he's all about it or anything like that. But he loves us no matter what. No matter what. That's the love that we're to be known by. That kind of love that continues to love. One of the church fathers, Tertullian, Tertullian, again, say that three times real fast, wrote back in the third century, it is mainly the deeds of love. He's, He's describing the church and the environment of the church and how it was in the early stages of this. It is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they're ready even to die for one another. This was a profound witness to the Roman world, a world that that operated under such sharp social divisions. Everything was segregated. with, And, and so this, this love that crossed all of those barriers was was alarming and radical, but alluring at the same time. One of the reasons why the church was turning the world upside down. Sometimes we may hear this command to love like this and relegate it to some unattainable ideal. Yes, that's very nice. I love that thought. It's lovely. But listen, while we'll never do this perfectly or even well, we do love like this. We do. We, we already love like this as we've come into Christ. I've witnessed it here. I've seen it. It's not always big and it's rarely grandstanded, but I've seen it. It's unmistakable, that love that he's describing. I mean, take a second. You can even just think back over the week. Remember times that you've chosen to love. Maybe, maybe by looking after someone else's needs or overlooking an insensitive comment from a friend or taking your time to listen to someone and pray for them. That's what this love looks like in real life. Sometimes it's bigger than that. And maybe some greater act of sacrifice. Sometimes it's even smaller than that. But I'd be willing to bet that each of us did in fact love one another this past week simply because we belong to Christ. Simply because that's who we're made to be. And I'd also be willing to bet that there were situations over the last week or two when we found it difficult to love, where it was too hard to forgive the hurt or ignore the offense. 
where we pushed our way ahead without thinking about anyone but ourselves. So we remember, okay, we've got room to grow. <laughs> we haven't gotten this figured out yet, or at least not here. The good Christians haven't found this place yet, so we're still safe. We can love more. We can learn. We can allow the Holy Spirit to reshape us, to realign us, to enable us to love like this. We, we can go out and continue bearing the family resemblance, and it can still be accentuated, drawn out more and more. So we're learning day by day that we're loved by God, and we're learning day by day to love others as a result of that love. This is how Jesus gets made real in the world in which we live. So let's remember this command. It's supremely important. Let's make it our personal priority. This is the means by which we're going to be known as those who belong to Jesus. And let's not build a church with a culture that demands conformity as its emphasis somehow. Let's not whip ourselves into some unsustainable zeal for a good cause or some moral. Let's obey Christ's command. Let's embrace his great love for us so that we can in turn love the world around us. That is how heaven meets earth. Right on? All right, very cool. If you're able to, if you'd like to stand with me. I want to take a moment here and uh, pray about some situations. Uh, For one thing, uh, Susie Cooch, who shared with us last week, is uh, heading back to Africa. Uh, I didn't realize she was leaving so soon. So I want us to pray for her. She's had a couple tragedies happen within their sphere of ministry. And she also is suffering physically uh, with her back. And so I thought it would be good if we could take the time to pray for her. But also, uh, I want to pray about just the world situation right now. Obviously, you're probably well aware of what's happening uh, over in Israel. Um, You know, obviously, the, the Jewish people have suffered greatly over the years from anti-Semitism, and I think it's important for us to declare our heart and love for the Jewish people. That doesn't necessarily mean we're endorsing some political anything. We're just praying for Israel and uh, believing God to bring peace there. Um, somebody's bound to ask me at some point, maybe not if I say this, but <laughs> people will always say when things like this happen, well, is this it? Is this the sign of the end? Are we in the end times? Yeah. Uh, we've been there for about 2,000 years, a lot longer than I thought uh, it would be. But ever since Jesus ascended and we are waiting for his return, we are in the end days. So how this all plans out, I have no idea. We'll put that in God's hands and do what we're called to do. Because if this is the wrap up or whatever, our job description does not change. We just read it just a minute ago. That job description, to, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, to love our neighbors as ourselves, that's ongoing. When Jesus shows up, we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did what I told you to do. Uh, we'll let these other things sort themselves out, but we will pray. But let's pray for, for Susie. Father, we, we, we bring Susie before you. Lord, we thank you so much for her heart to minister to the least of these, to those who, uh, by our estimations of things, seem to have nothing. But she goes in with the love of Christ and 
and reveals how much any of us can have. Even in the midst of material poverty, we can be rich. And she reveals that. She shows your love to the people of South Sudan. And so we pray for her, Father, that you comfort her in the, in the losses that she's experienced within her ministry family. We pray that you comfort all of those who are involved. And we ask you to sustain and strengthen her, Lord, as she travels to, to South Sudan. Uh, enable her to do the work that you've called her to do. Sustain her through that. Bring her home safely to her, to her family. We pray for her kids who are still here. We ask you to watch over them and protect them in the process of these things. And Lord, we turn our attention to the, the grander scale of world events. And I've spent my life, I've heard my whole life as world events unfold and wars break out or famines occur, that these are the signs of the end. And I do believe they are. You said they would be in Matthew 24, that these things would characterize the fallen nature of this place while we wait for you to return and set all things right. Father, we pray for the people of Israel. We pray, Father, that you bring a quick conclusion to this conflict that's there. We pray for those who are held in captivity. We pray for everybody involved, Lord, because you told us to pray for our enemies. We pray for those who who initiate the attack. We pray for the innocent bystanders who are wanting to go about their, their daily lives and can't because of these conflicts, because the world is lacking in your love. So we pray, Father, that you protect and preserve life in this, that you bring it to a quick conclusion. We pray for the people involved in these various things. And Lord, the world stage continues to be this great drama of conflict and lack and need, but sometimes this surprising place of wonder and joy and hope. And so we pray that your light shines through all of this, that you, as that great beacon of hope, will be demonstrated through the lives of your followers where they are, those in Israel, those in other places, Father. And we pray that you shine through us as your people here in Panama City Beach. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.